Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. You, know, you come here to the 78th Psalm. If you look at the heading, and we're all educated in this now, but mascal, what does that mean? Instructions and the intention behind it is it requires a deep understanding. It's not something to just be pushed through. You know, we sing songs sometimes and they're so readily in our minds that we fail sometimes to meditate on the words. This is a psalm as Ace was penning it. He's saying, really guys, man, focus on this a moment. And then this 78th psalm, it really chronicles the history of Israel. And it takes it really pre-Egypt in one regard, but primarily through Egypt, through the plagues of Egypt into the wilderness wanderings is mentioned, and all the way into the time of King David. Now, it does not cover every point. That space of times was several hundred years, and Asa, in the chronicling of this by, uh, we have it by preservation, these 72 verses, he doesn't mention every little detail, but he is moving from watershed moment to watershed moment, from highlight to highlight. And he's moving through all of this, and he gives his purpose in these first few verses. I want you to notice them. Notice in verse number four, if you will. I, I think this is a theme that he's giving. He says, we will not hide them. Talking about uh, these, these things that our fathers have told us that relate the goodness of God. We will not hide them from their children. Showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his what? I think about the song just saying it's special. Fear. Fear is a reason a lot of folks turn back. It's unknown. It's unsure. It's one of the things that I most dislike about the media of today. It doesn't matter the bandwidth you've got it on or the political spectrum. It, it traffics in worst case scenarios. And it produces fear in a life believer and you think, well, all the world's going to come in. But what about the strength of God? What about the joy of the Lord? Notice he says in verse 4, His strength, His wonderful works, which He have done. The whole purpose is to chronicle these activities. The Lord, His praises, His strength, and His wonderful works. In the next verse, He's going to give you really in verse number 6 and 5 as well, but He's going to give you the reason it was written. That it was preserved, if you'll note in verse number 6, to teach the generation to come that they might know them. Know what? God's works, God's strengths, God's praises. He continues in verse 6, Even the children which should be... That's a little presumptuous, isn't it? The Jews have not always been a people in a sense of the context of a nation. They've been persecuted, maligned, how could you presume that you would have the, pay, the safety and wherewithal to have children that would continue the nation which God had promised Abraham? In order for the Jew, Asa in particular, to write this, he's got to believe of the preservation of God's promises. That God made Abraham the aged a promise. And in that promise, he guaranteed him that he would become a nation, a great nation of people. The only way this verse happens that there were children which would be or should be born... Just believe that God's going to make good of His promises. They should arise and declare them to their children. 
perpetuity here. Then you come down to verse 7. Why? Why do the children need these records of God's law, His works, His praises, His strength, that they might set their what? Hope in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. What a powerful exchange that they might have hope in God. He's going to bring about, really, all of this in verse number 9. And since he's talking of children and children that should come and that they would be different than the fathers that came before them, he's going to highlight one analogy. Now, there's going to be many points he's going to make, but one specific group. By my reading of these 72 verses, my study of them, I can only think of two tribes that are specifically mentioned by name in all of the context of the 72nd Psalm. Ephraim is mentioned twice, and Judah, I believe, once. And the reference of Judah deals primarily with the coming of David and the setting up of a kingdom. Ephraim is mentioned every time in only a negative sense. Note here the passage. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God, they refused to walk in His law, and forgot His works, his wonders that it showed them. Marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, the field of his own. He's going to begin to listen to some of these. But note verse number 9. The children of Israel, or rather Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, what did they do? They turned back. So I began to study in the Scriptures. Where did this historical event, where is it narrated? And I think there's perhaps three places in the Scriptures which would mean or at least designate that it could be a possibility. One of those is found in Judges chapter 1 and verse 29. I'm not going to look at all these. I'm just giving them to you for time's sake. In Judges chapter 1 and verse 29, the Scripture records of the tribe of Ephraim that didn't drive out the Canaanites and they dwelt in amongst them. But I don't think that's the reference that it's referencing. And the primary reason why I do not believe that Judges 1.29 is referencing here in this point is because of Judges 1.30 and Judges 1 and 27 and Judges 1 and 28, etc. Methodically, all of the tribes of Israel have that same moniker in that verse. Children of Judah, drave out the, out the inhabitants of Canaan. And children of Benjamin. So it would not seem fair to me to articulate this particular disdain on the nation or the tribe of Ephraim when in fact every single one of the tribes had failed. I don't think that's it. I think another place that you could look is 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4, there was the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they were over, or I should say the high priest that was to minister everything was one named Eli. And two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And they were in great battle against the children of Philistines. And uh, the children of Philistines and the Jews, they went back and forth in this battle. And the Ark of the Covenant was brought out by Hophni and Phinehas. God allowed judgment to fall upon them and of Israel. And there was a great defeat that occurred that day. 
And some believe that that's the time it's talking about. The reason why is that battle and the Ark of the Covenant itself dwelt in Shiloh. And Shiloh was within the territorial borders of the land that was given to Ephraim. And that it was Ephraim's primary responsibility to defend that area of its inheritance. And it failed to do so. It turned back in the day of battle. But I don't think that's the place it is. And one could say, well, why not? Because there's no direct mention that Ephraim wasn't there. A third place that you'll find in scriptures related to Ephraim or its territory is found in an obscure passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 7. And I'm just going to narrate the thoughts to you, so you can go look these up later. I'd encourage you to do so. But in 1, Corinthians cha- or 1 Chronicles rather, chapter 7, it mentions there Ephraim and his sons. <clears throat> and it lists in Chronicles eight sons. And the scripture says that the Philistines came upon them because they wanted their cattle. And that the Philistines slew of them five of Ephraim's sons and took their cattle. And that's the essence of it. And then you go over and find in Numbers, chapter 1 and chapter 26, you got a census. And of Ephraim, it's just listed that three sons begat all these children. Yet when you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 7, you'll find what? Eight sons. So... Three minus eight gives us a difference of five. I think of all the illustrations that could be used, this likely is what had happened. These literal sons of Ephraim had a portion of land designated to them by Almighty God. You see, Ephraim is a unique man. Ephraim's daddy is Joseph. That's right, Ephraim is not the son of Jacob. He is the son of Joseph. I speak not of the tribe. I speak of the namesake of the tribe. And he says, younger son of Joseph, there was another son. Do you remember who was? Manasseh. And both of these two boys, but particularly we're speaking of Ephraim this morning, were unique. They were different than the other ten sons. For one thing, they were not born into the land of God's promise. Well, that's where Judah was born. That's where Benjamin was born. That's where Simeon, Levi, Naphtali, Asher, Dan, all of them were born there. But not Ephraim and not Manasseh. You see, you go back to Genesis chapter 41, you'll find out that Joseph has just been delivered from prison and he has a word of wisdom which he gives unto Pharaoh and it saves many people alive. And it's a thanks to him he is promoted to high place and, and, and uh, Pharaoh gave Joseph a wife. Particularly that union brought about these two children, Manasseh and Ephraim. And they were born in the land of Goshen. They were born in the land of Egypt. And they were reared... And they grew. And all of this passed before they would ever lay their eyes on that old crippled blind man named Jacob who would in his later years visit them. All this time had passed. Yet God in His providence bestowed grace upon them. They did not have the same youthful experience of all the other tribes. They didn't have the opportunity to meet Isaac like some of the other children of Jacob did. 
They didn't know of all of the background that existed, but yet they were yet recipients of God's blessing. They weren't there at the promises of Abraham. They weren't there at the promises of Jacob. They did not grow up hearing of these blessed promises that God had given to Jacob. It was completely different. Might I say there's a little bit of a miraculous appointment in the fact that they were ever even born. Was it not? Was it not Joseph who they thought surely had died as they sold him into captivity? And yet, when the ten brothers would come down and they would go to Egypt to get provisions, as it were, they would meet Joseph, and subsequent later on in the narrative, they would find out that God had blessed him and his wife, that they have two children. And so God incorporated these two sons as part of these twelve sons of Jacob. They received, Joseph, if you will, received, if you will, a double blessing that would come to him. Ephraim had great grace bestowed upon him. When you look at the life of Ephraim, the tribe, and you go down through the narrative of Scripture, she has great fame. For after the great lawgiver Moses that would go into Egypt and lead forth the people, Moses being of the tribe of Levi, there was one that would follow him and become a captain, a general, the great leader of Israel. Remember his name? Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, if you'll trace Nun's lineage, guess what tribe he belonged to? Ephraim. Isn't that marvelous to you? That of all of the people that did not receive the judgment of the hand of God in the wilderness wandering because of their bickerness and their backbiting, one of them, there'd be two, Caleb and Josh, one of them was an Ephraimite. Of all the great blessings It'd be an Ephraimite halfway on the mountain when the tables of stone were written upon. Be an Ephraimite that would assist and aid. It would be an Ephraimite that really all of Israel would follow and see God perform wondrous and glorious works. Their inheritance. You know, we talk about Pennsylvania being the keystone. That comes from the colonial days. She was... The biggest state fitted in between two halves. That's what that keystone means. Apart to the northeast, the area of Massachusetts and subsequently what previously was known as the Bay Colonies. And the area to the south of Virginia and all of those agricultural colonies. And right in between, lynching them together was a keystone. Did you know that's why the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has not one but two of its fine cities served as the capital? It did. You know, Ephraim was the keystone when they went in and got their inheritance. She was right in the middle. To her southern border was Judah and Benjamin. Dan to her right-hand side. Manasseh, Reuben, the half-tribe of Manasseh, on the far side to her left. And above her, Asher and Nephtali. She was right in the essence of it. And in the city, uh, in the center of all of the tribes of Israel, as I've already lied, laid Shechem and Shiloh where the ark of God was. And once a year, as recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, etc., all of the tribes would leave and they would come to Shiloh to worship. She had grand influence. 
Yet if you would take the opportunity to look at Numbers chapter 1 and Numbers chapter 26, Moses took two census to see how many men from the age of 20 up were ready for battle. And he enumerates them in chapter 1. And then many, many years later, he does a second census by God's command in Numbers chapter 26. And you'll find that with the exception of three tribes, every group has an increase. But not Ephraim. She had a decrease. Wonder why that happened. Well, sandwiched in between those two senses are a number of God's judgments against her. But the name of Ephraim is not always noted. But why else would you have so many thousands of individuals that formerly they or their relatives were alive, but now you're getting to the end of the book of Numbers and it's not. And it's because there had been multiple judgments which God had brought upon the land of Israel. And Egypt often found herself focused, I said Egypt, Ephraim often found herself opposed to the commands of God. And that attitude from Ephraim would continue. For First Kings chapter 11 and verse 26 and chapter 14 and verse 1, you'll find that once there was a fellow by the name of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who would be a usurper, who would be a betrayer and would seek to divide the kingdom against Rehoboam and was successful in his exploits and would become Jeroboam the first, the king of Israel. And from that point on, you'll often find the prophets referencing Israel as the ten tribes and Judah as the southern two tribes, or sometimes just to surrender the whole thing, God would pronounce judgment upon, a coming judgment upon Ephraim, and that was an articulate, broad expression by which he labeled all of the nine tribes that followed evil, Ephraim, in her place. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. Why, why would such a group that had great promise, why would a group that had such great wonder, why would a group that had such great potential turn back against God? Had not God promised them that it would be their land? Yes. Had, had not God promised them a deliverer? Had God not God promised that He would bless them? Had not God promised that He would turn aside all their enemies? Why would they turn away? You know, many years later, there'd be another group from Gath that would besiege the, the city of Jerusalem. And in that great battle, it seems there that you had 1 Kings chapter 17, you have a whole host of individuals from every tribe of Israel that halted to go to battle. Save one little ruddy boy. Likely the same time period. Similar activity? Why is it that five sons of Ephraim that were armed, carrying bows, turned back about against from the men of Gath, and one shepherd boy, armed with a leather slingshot and a pocket full of rocks, charged the enemy? What made the difference? Was it the weapons they had? Seemed to me if I was going into war, I'd, 
I think I'd like to rather have bows than slingshots. Was it their ages? Oh, I likely think David was the youngest of them. Why did they turn back? And by applications, look at the whole, why is it that Christians someday turn back, turn away from following God? We'll give you a few of them. There's probably a whole list that we could add, but let me give you just a few. I think number one, because the battle was too difficult. As Paul's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, Endure hardness as a good of Jesus Christ, good soldier of Jesus Christ. We have glorious enemies in this life. This world system has not nor ever will be a friend to the world or a friend to the believer. In fact, in James and in John, we're told that friendship with the world is enmity against God. They are the enemy. If you're looking, if you're looking to derive satisfaction from the world system, condoning what you're doing and appreciating what you're trying to do for the cause of Christ, you'll be looking for a long time. You know something I note about the Christian race and the Christian walk? It doesn't get easier. It's difficult. At times there'll be people very close to you that will approve of you being a Christian, but not that Christian. They'll be happy for you to be someone that espouses. I saw something the other day that I had to look three times. A little meme that a group posted and and it came across and and I read it and they said, listen, if you want to be a real Christian, you need to stop following men. You need to stop following the Bible. You need to stop following church and you need to just follow Christ. That's what it said. I want to ask you a question. And I didn't misspeak. How, how are you a follower of Christ without the Word of God? Only if you've made Christ in your own imagination. What a terrible travesty that we can just make Christ in our own imagination and say, oh, I'm following Christ, even if we're in direct conflict with His revealed Word. Why did they turn back? I think perhaps because the battle just became too difficult. Enemies were too great in their estimation. And listen, lest we're making light of them, think in your mind back to the story of David and Goliath. There was a whole host of men from Gath and the five cities of the Philistines. And look what all of the experienced, hardened troops of Saul and Saul himself did. They halted. I'm trying to make light of them. I'm rather trying to give the application that in our walk with God, the adversaries will often seem insurmountable. And sometimes it will be those, and perhaps sometimes Christians, and they don't mean it that way. They didn't mean to keep you away from God. They didn't mean to keep you from pleasing God. But they're turning back and really wish you would too. Why'd they turn back? I think another reason is the battle was just too distant. 
It was difficult, but it was distance too long. Took too much time and commitment. I think what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4 to Timothy. He said, I have fought a good fight. Do you remember the next phrase? I finished my, I finished my course. That's a whole race. That's a whole life. The Christian life is not a sprint. You know, you just 400 yard dash or whatever, you know, just 100 meters, get to the end, I'm done. Now, it's really more like in a marathon. And in its run, there'll be many ups and downs and lefts and rights and back and forth. It's distant. And there's a lot of times along the way that Christians will say it's just not worth it because it's too long. Why'd they turn back? A third one is the battle was just too different. They allowed pragmatism, really, to get hold of them. They deemed it unnecessary. I mean, I'm not against fighting a battle. I'm fighting it for a long time, but... I don't know that this is the battle we need to fight over. And particularly thinking of 1 Chronicles chapter 7, the cattle just weren't worth it. Don't stand here and fight for those cows. I mean, I'll fight for something else, but I'm not going to fight for cows. That's pragmatism. I relate later in 1 Samuel chapter, or 2 Samuel chapter 23, there's a spouse there, the mighty man of David. And one of them, distant relative of David. In fact, a group of them fought all the way to Bethlehem. And from the well that was at Bethlehem drew from thence a cup of water, remember? And they'd taken it to David. And David offered it up to the Lord by not consuming it himself. It's a drink offering. It's what he was doing. Of that same group, one of them, his name was Shammah. And the scripture records to us in the 23 chapter of Samuel that he fought until his hand claved to the sword. Do you remember what he was fighting in? He wasn't fighting over cows. What was he fighting over? Filled of lentils, beans. Well, if the children of Ephraim didn't esteem the cattle, the livestock, worth fighting over, pragmatists, you know, it's just... Too different. It's not worth it here. What about Oshama? I think sometimes we look at the Christian life and we say, well, I'm going to get to big points, but all this little stuff, it really doesn't matter at all. That's the first step to turning back. The devil is the mastery at defeating Christians in the little things of the Christian life. I can murmur and complain. That's not a big thing. A brother was talking about profanity and such in Sunday school. We look at that and say, well, uh, I wouldn't do that. But in the little things, I don't see the real importance of it. I'm being faithful to God in the big things, but faithfulness to Him and prayer and Bible reading, those are little things. I'm not going to worry about it. That might have been the possibility of what Ephraim did here. His sons just became too different. No one else 
is concerned with the land that God's given us. No one else is having to fight over those cows. Why should we? I think a fourth thing, the battle was too distinct. It required a distinction that they were unwilling to commit to. In fact, just keeping the thought of battle, I think back to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Levi's in the distant, Eli's rather in the distant place. Hophni and Phinehas have died. The great battle that's ensued, and there's an interesting phrase that's used there. It says that, and, and a man's name is not given. He's a Benjamite. Listen to this. He said he leaves from that place of battle and he goes to Eli to tell him that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken and that his sons have died. Now we often know what happens when Eli hears this. He falls over backwards, breaks his neck and die. But I want you to think for a moment about this fellow. This is what the scripture says about him. It says this Benjamite, and the phrase it uses is this, with earthen upon his head. I thought that was interesting. Why was that so important? That seems like a minute detail. Why was it so important to include that phrase that the guy had dirt, earth, upon his head? Why was that important? It denoted something about him. You know where he'd been? He'd been in the thick of it. And I'll be honest, when we're in the battle, the race that God has for us, a little bit of that battle will get on you sometimes. There'll be earthen upon your head. You'll look different. You'll love different things. This Benjamite come and his heart is broke. That the ark has been taken and Hophni and Phinehas are now deceased and that all of Israel is fleeing before them. It bothered him. He's done everything within his ability. Here the children of Ephraim just turned back. They didn't want that type of struggle in their life. They didn't want that type of rejection. They didn't want that type of cost in their life. It was just too distinct. I think another reason the children of Ephraim, and again, there's a whole number of them that we could listen to. It's a battle that re... It's a battle that often is brought about with great defeat because there's just too many distractions in life. Something else had their attention. I've got other things to do. I think of the Lord calling his disciples. You remember the parable of this? And one had just taken a wife. And one had aging parents. There's always a distraction that God will see come between him and the victorious Christian life. If you're looking for a reason not to press towards the mark of Christ Jesus, if you're looking for a reason not to follow hard after the things of God, if you're looking for a reason, there'll be an abundant host of distractions. And if you need a distraction, our adversary is quite adept at providing them. And so the children of Ephraim said, I'll concede this battle so that I can enjoy the life that I want, have, and deserve. It's a whole host of them. You, you could dig into this, folks. You could talk about the fact that maybe they just didn't care for what God had given them. They didn't, I didn't even like those cows to begin with. You ever, you ever seen probably children do this? They'll 
get in trouble, they're fighting over something, and one of them has to concede, and the whole argument was about this thing and the child that now can't play with Well, I never liked it anyhow. Ephraim, I, I never liked those cows anyhow. I don't even know why God gave them to me. Sadly put, whether it's church or the Christian life or your walk with God, it's a very easy thing in the Christian life for us to have that same attitude. Well, I never, I mean, there was always things I hated about it. This is where many Christians fail. We fail to recognize the marvelous gift that God has given them. You know what was so special about those cattle? You know what was so special about that land? There's only one thing that made it special. God gave it to them. Now if I can make an application here. You know it all to make this church special to you? God gave it to you. In keeping with our analogy, the gifts God gives to you, we have a responsibility to maintain. Just as much as these sons of Ephraim in the passage I mentioned in Corinthians chapter 7 had a responsibility to keep and maintain their cattle and the land of the possession, so you and I have a responsibility as well. Too often in the Christian life, we allow some of the gifts of God to be wasted and surrendered to the enemies. And we bring reproach upon our name in the name of Christ forever. Yes, it's a battle. That's what Scripture over and again equates the Christian life to. Yes, sometimes discouragement comes. When discouragement comes, what should be the response of the Christian towards the discouragement? He should stay in the battle. Not turn back. There are proper ways to deal with discouragement in the Christian life. The worst way that you can deal with discouragement in the Christian life is to turn back from God. You're wavering. Sometimes the battle doesn't always seem to go the way you'd want it to. And we waver. Sometimes the wavering is because we doubt God. Somehow in our expectation, our thought and understanding, we think that, that the battle will always commence right away with our victory and we'll go on to another one. But sometimes a Christian life is a lingering battle. We waver a little bit. We doubt. What should you do? Stay in the battle. Sometimes we look towards the distant views of the future. Ephraim's looking a little bit like this. There's a whole group that God has given, a whole vast land that God has given me. I have all many things to do. Be careful and look into the distant that you don't overlook the here and now. Sometimes looking for the distance, you can miss a lot of the good that is right now. Sometimes looking to the distance, you can make a lot of evil mistakes in the right here and now. Let me give you just one quick analogy to drive that home. You look towards the distance one day of having grandchildren and overlook the choice who you've made for a mate. Do you see a problem with that? It's an analogy in grand keeping. 
Many a church look to the distance of one day having a building, having people, having this, that, and the other, and they forget that the battle is often fought right here in the here and now. Stay in the battle. Why? Well, I'll circle back to these verses we looked at at the beginning. We stay in the battle and don't turn back because the next generation depends on it. Some time ago, I was conversing with a gentleman. We were talking about people that influenced us. And I said, you know, I have so many people, preachers, church folks, that have influenced me over my life that God has used to shape me. I don't know what I would have done. And I realize the sovereignty of God. I understand the word of God. But I'm glad there were some people that went long before me that just didn't turn back when things got difficult. And ministered to me. And as a young man, I could look at it and say, wow, I want to finish like they finished. And if I want to finish like they finished, then I can't quit. I had to stay the task. Why? Next generation depends on it. Why? Because God's grace demands it. God has given me something. I would not commit an unholy offense to God and being thankless and apathetic towards something that He died and gave me as an inheritance. I could never look at church and my walk with God is seemingly insignificant. Some of you have relatives or close friends that may have given you something, maybe a legacy, and you treasure it and you care for it. It's not an idol in your life, but it's a fairly big piece of priority in your life to maintain. My friend, think of your spiritual life with God. Equally, it must be maintained. God's grace demands it. Why should I stay in the battle? Because ultimately God has promised victory. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turn back in the day of battle. What be written on our spiritual journal? If 50 years from now, these children that should come could lay upon the journal of our spiritual life, what's written on it? That we were dedicated to the King of God or the God of all heaven and earth or that we turned back in the day of battle? The answer to that question will ultimately dictate the decisions you make in life. And that will separate those who failed God's grace from those who followed in God's grace. Let's stand to our feet. Father, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.